Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. This is Veterans Day as we're filming today's episode, and uh, we all, all owe an enormous debt of gratitude to these heroes directly in our lives, indirectly, whatever country we're from, uh, whatever part of our hearts and our lives that those uh, fabulous heroes have occupied. It's a special day there. It's also a special day you know, for us here at Cloud Wars Live in that one of our regular guests, one of the stars of Cloud Wars Live, Chris Lockhead. We haven't seen him for a few months. He's had a lot going on in his life. And we're going to try to weave together a few of these threads today from Veterans Day, a sense of loss, a sense of heroes, a sense of the impact that these things have on our lives. So Chris, welcome back. It is fantastic to see you. Thanks so much for having me back, Bob. It's been four months and it's been a long four months and I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be with you. Well, Chris, you know, you have become one of the uh, top podcasters in the world, particularly in the business area. You're a best-selling author. You know how to tell stories. So I'm going to do our audiences a favor and shut up and turn things over to you. <laughs> well, thanks, Bob. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's Veterans Day and um I think for many of us, myself included, Veterans Day is a very powerful day. Memorial Day is a very powerful day. And uh, I try to never forget that we live in the land of the free because of the commitment and the sacrifices of the brave. Freedom is not free. And um, to that end, I'd like to tell you about uh, a few veterans in my life. Um, the first one's my grandfather, Jack, and uh, he was born in Scotland, and uh, he served in the Royal Navy during World War II. And for whatever reason, Bob, as a young boy, I was deeply fascinated by World War II. You know, I remember uh, the Guns of Navarone movie, and my mom bought me the Guns of Navarone toy, you know, the and all that stuff, and Army Man, and G.I. Joe, and all of that stuff. Um, I was fascinated by it. All of those uh, black and white images of, 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 of fighter planes and of bombings and all of that stuff. As a very young kid, um, I was fascinated by it. And of course, having a grandfather who served in the war uh, made it realer, even as a young kid. And I remember very distinctly, Bob, uh, and you'll excuse me if I uh, get a little emotional, but um, very distinctly at about five, five years old, somewhere around there, young, I remember saying to him, granddad, why did you, uh, why were you in World War II? And he said, I went so that you could have a better life. And I, uh, he was lucky, of course, to live. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Many of his friends did not. Many. And so uh, I think it's important for me to remember those sacrifices. And those sacrifices continue to this day. In the United States of America, we have a 100% volunteer uh, military. 100% volunteer. And it's not like we pay the millions of dollars a year. These people are not uh, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Um, and they serve for many reasons. But the veterans that I know, my friends, uh, serve out of a commitment 
to our country. And uh, so I, I keep my, my grandfather with me every day. The other veteran I want to tell you about uh, is my father-in-law, Phil. He served our country in the Korean War as a Marine. Uh, my grandfather was also in the Navy. And in December of this year, 2020, Phil will turn 90 years old. He's extraordinarily healthy, thank God, and thank his daughters, because whenever anything's up with Phil, they're on it. And we have all come together as a family to make sure that he and his wife, um, Jean, who's a, about five years younger, uh, we're all over their health. If anything looks off, we're on it. And so we have fought hard to keep them healthy and to keep them with us. And we're grateful for every moment. And my um, father-in-law I spoke to this morning, he talks to my wife twice a day. He runs the last uh, working commercial orchard in San Jose. He's got about uh, just a hair under two acres with approximately 600 fruit trees, most of them stone fruit, peaches, and uh, plums and things along those lines. He's got an incredible garden, grows grapes and parsimons and lots of other things as well. But primarily known for stone fruit, the most legendary peaches on planet Earth, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, his daughters make the most legendary peach cobbler you've ever tasted with homemade ice cream, homemade peach ice cream, I'll tell you. Anyway, they're an Italian family, uh, very, very close, um, very, very loving. Uh, it's been one of the absolute great joys in my life to, to become part of this family. And I wanted to share with you what I shared with Phil this morning. And we call him Papa. And I said, you know, Papa, I wished him a happy Veterans Day. And I said, I want you to know that I'm proud to be in a family where you're the patriarch. You are the model of what a man is. He served our country and he loves our country deeply. He loves his wife and his family and his kids and his grandchildren. He loves the shit out of those fruit trees. He spends six hours a day in that orchard, pretty much seven days a week. And he deeply loves his church and his community. And that's kind of it. You now know Phil. Now there's lots of other things you could delve into with him. And he'll tell you about everything you ever wanted to know about produce <laughs> for a long time if you're willing to listen. Um, but he is, and I say this in the most laudatory way possible, a simple man. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that's amazing about Phil, it would be easy if you said, Hey, 90 year old Italian American man, um, you know, you could think about a man like that, maybe not being hip, not being with it, maybe not having modern ideas, uh, not being accepting of certain things, particularly if I said Italian Catholic. 90-year-old man. In the, case of, um, in the case of Phil, none of that is true. He is incredibly open-minded. He's incredibly loving. He believes in personal freedoms, live and let live. If you're a good person, you're okay with him. He's uh, one of the most uh, unjudgmental people I've ever known. And um, he is emblematic of what I believe a real man is. And so those are two, and I have others, but those are two legendary veterans uh, in my life that I'm thankful for every day. 
Now, I'd also like to tell you a little bit about two well-known veterans that I've gotten to know, one quite a bit better than the other, but in both cases, got to know them a little bit. And uh, the one that I know a little bit better is, um, is uh, four-star General Stanley McChrystal. And um, he's been on my podcast several times, and um, we've spent a bunch of time together. Um, and he's written some amazing books. His partner, Chris Fussell, former Navy SEAL Chris Fussell, extraordinary man. Uh, also been on my podcast several times. And uh, I think you might remember, but a few years ago, I had the opportunity to meet and interview General Powell on stage at a, at a corporate IT event, actually, in New York. And um, there's a couple interesting thing about these legendary generals that I have noticed. Um, one is what I shared with you about my grandfather and my father-in-law, deep, 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 deep commitment to service. And it's not bullshit. It's not words. Uh, profound, profound sense of commitment. Uh, General Powell, as you know, is from New York, joined in the infantry and rose to become the number one, in his words, soldier in the United States of America. And as an interesting side note, when we were getting ready to receive um, General Powell, um, his team briefed us on certain things and the do's and the don'ts and, and all of that stuff that's typical when, you, uh, when you're going to have a, a dignitary at his level participate in, 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 in this case, a company event and give his thoughts on leadership and various other things. And one of the things, of course, we asked was, um, how should we refer to him? And as you may know, with folks like this, what is the normal practice is to, get, is to use the title that they last had and or the title that was the highest title they ever had. And so in the case of Colin Powell, that would be Secretary Powell. And so you would, I would have expected to call him Mr. Secretary or Secretary Powell or things along those lines. And his team made it very clear, while that is the norm, his preference is to be called General Powell because he is first and foremost an enlisted member of the infantry. He's a soldier. Um, in the case of uh, General McChrystal, um, I've gotten to know him more informally, and uh, he insists on being called Stan. <laughs> And Bob, I have a very hard time calling him Stan because I really want to call him General McChrystal as a uh, acknowledgement of the legendary uh, man in service, the man he is in service he has given our country. But um, he says it makes him much more comfortable to be called Stan, so I try really hard to do that. But here's the sort of insight that I'm sitting with today on Veterans Day as I think about these legendary veterans in my life. And that is how fascinating it is that the greatest warriors become peacemakers. General Powell, I know, because he told me, is deeply committed to peace and deeply, deeply believes that war is the last result or the last, the last thing you would possibly do. When you, when you truly believe there is no other way and my understanding is that's the way um, General McChrystal and Stan feels as well. And that those men 
And in their own way, my father-in-law, Phil, and my grandfather, Jack, were the same way. After war, they didn't want any war. They didn't want any fighting. I've never heard my father-in-law raise his voice. So it's fascinating to me that these legendary warriors who have succeeded in war, their commitment now, their commitment after the fact is a deep, deep commitment to peace and to freedom. And I think there's a lesson in that, certainly for me and maybe for others. Uh, remarkable stories there. Um, I was looking up this quote as you were describing how, you know, they become peacemakers and sorry, but it was, I, I think this has been around for thousands of years, perhaps. If you would seek peace, prepare for war. So you have these simple men, these great men who did not seek war, they sought peace. But to achieve that, as your grandfather said to you, I did this so you could have a better life. They did those hard things. They took uh, willingly the sacrifice that would be called on them. And while they achieved great heights, they kept in mind the ultimate goal, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the ultimate success for those generals would be to make war somewhat, uh, you know, extinct. I mean, that, that, that runs counter to the human condition, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But to have these people who understand it so clearly uh, in that effort to try to bring peace to the world is, is great. And I think it was Dwight Eisenhower too, who said, something like only a fool would ever want war he said you know it's it's the uh until every other option has been exhausted chris i want to ask about your your grandfather and i know uh you were pretty young four five six years old the story that that you mentioned there and when he explained that the reason for his sacrifice did you know him when you were a little bit older so you know you could follow through with this? Did, because my sense of these extraordinary heroes, veterans from World War II, my father, the fathers of all of my friends came back from World War II or the Korean War, they would never, ever, ever talk about what they did. It's like it was a chapter in their lives. They shut it and they closed it and they did not want to share it, especially I think with the people they love the most. Yeah, I think um, I think best I can tell, and I'm not an expert, but um, that's emblematic of that generation. Um, I saw some veterans on TV. There, there were, I wish I could remember his name. There was a paratrooper who landed in France on D-Day uh, on TV yesterday who um, went skydiving at 99. Did you happen to see this? <laughs> no. no. It was unbelievable. Gosh. And, and wow. he was talking about exactly this point, that, um, that it's part of, and this, this will get me to a recent book that uh, I think is a very powerful book by Ryan Holiday called Lives of the Stoics. Mm -hmm. There was something very stoic, important about that. And in the case of my grandfather, Jack, um, he would share, share certain things with me. I think 
I was so curious about it that he wanted to respond. And he died when I was 16, 17 years old, uh, which is young, but I, I was an old 17. You know what I mean? I mean, I left the house at 17. Um, I started my first company at 18. So um, anyway, I, I would ask him about it over the years and he would share little things here and there. And I would piece together some of his experiences and, 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 you know, why, for example, he chose, he and my grandmother chose not to marry when he got deployed because um, he knew that he might not come home and he didn't want to burden her with that. And so they waited till after the war to get married. Um, and, and, and many stories about what it was like and what it felt like and um, what Europe was like, um, what Scotland was like, what England was like at the time, what it felt like to get your papers and to get deployed um, and, and the luck of the draw uh, and the hand of fate that just for one reason, he was deployed on one ship and uh, his buddies were deployed on others and his buddies didn't come home and he did and things along those lines. So he, he shared with me more um, because I asked. And interestingly enough, um, we've asked Phil more and more over time. And as he's gotten older, he, share, he has shared more and more. Um, not the heavy, heavy stories, but just more things about his life. We know more about his life than we did even a few years ago. And uh, another author, maybe if we get a chance to talk about today, is this guy, Bruce Feiler, who's written this extraordinary book, a legendary book for our time. We just had him on the podcast. Um, his book's called Life is in the Transitions. And his insight, he's a New York Times bestseller, his insights and his research are stunning. We can hopefully get to that in a minute. But one of the things that he talks about on, when he came on the podcast and he talks about in the book is he refers to some research about what are the elements that lead to successful adults? And one of the key things is that as children, they learn their family history and they learn it in an unvarnished way. So if, if you had an uncle who experienced something horrible or some big challenge or whatever it was, and so by sharing the unvarnished truth about your parents and your grandparents and your, your extended family and so forth, that uh, the research shows that when children know those things, um, they become more successful adults, according to what Bruce shared with me. And so I think whether it was my grandfather um, or my father-in-law today, while their generation was very parsimonious about what they would say, the fact that both of them have been willing to open up somewhat with us, that's an incredible thing because... Um, I can now share with my sister's kids a lot about their great-grandfather. And I can share with Papa's grandchildren and his great-grandchildren a lot about their grandfather. And some of them are too young to know. And now hopefully, I think we're going to have them for another 25 years, if I'm not mistaken. But um, so hopefully they'll get to hear some of those things directly from him. But no matter what, I'll always know those things and be able to share those things. And when Bruce Feiler told me that, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a powerful insight. And I'd never thought about it for myself. But one of the things that I think is a source of comfort and a source of grounding and a source of some true North core values are 
some of those things that my grandfather told me and some of the struggles that my parents had and my uncles had and uh, and so forth and so on. Chris, you know, that, that's wild. You think about, you mentioned those two, you know, highly visible warriors, uh, Stan McChrystal and Colin Powell, and uh, somebody might see them today, hear them talk, and they say, whoa, that, that, and just have no concept that those people were, you know, some of the greatest warriors in the world. And uh, it shows then as you tell those stories to the next generations and across sideways across families, and to the younger folks, I think part of what maybe what Filer uh, discovered in that book is that it gives younger people a sense of saying, you can look at somebody and you think you know them, but there's much more to every individual than what jumps to the surface how could somebody you know like your incredible father-in-law you know doing that at 90 years old you know spending six hours a day seven days a week in his orchards and all the other things in the loving family yet uh, man if it i would guess that if anybody ever typified the the line about the marines you know your very best friend or your very worst enemy it's the united states marine it would have been your uncle when he was called to do that and yet he can be the total opposite sort of person. Perhaps there's something very enriching for young people and inspiring for them to see that these, you know, as they young folks come to see us as old timers, hey, there's, there's a lot more there than you might have thought. Maybe we will tend to give, e you know, each other more of a chance. Let me get to know the, who this person really is before I choose to put him or her in this box or that box. Um, <clears throat> my dad was in the uh, Navy. And what you said about, uh, you know, your grandfather's uh, choosing not to marry before he left, there probably something similar with my dad was not much of a talker, but uh, the word is that he said to my mom the night before he shipped out, he said, will you be here when I get back? They, they were not married. And uh, my mom said, oh, of course that was a marriage proposal. He said, you know, that was, that was very clear. And, uh, you know, was we grew up and hearing some stories about dad and what he did in the Navy, you know, he would be very good at deflecting, well, you know, we sailed around the world, we did this, you know, blah. And uh, as I got older, uh, I would ask him a lot of questions about it. And finally, one day he said, look, I've told you, you know, what I think you need to know, but here's a box. And he gave me all these papers. So, if you, you know, because over a period of months, I looked through these and I charted where he was going on these ships and it made no sense, you know, he, you know, he sure wasn't delivering supplies somewhere. So uh, after my dad died, which was in 1993, along with some of my siblings, I said, there's more here about his war history than we knew. And my sister discovered in a box of their stuff down at the bottom, uh, some pay receipts that he had had. And it was, you know, there it was, you know, from the Office of Naval Intelligence. So dad was a spy and he, uh, he just thought it was better to <laughs> take that secret with him. Uh, maybe he knew that, you know, each of his kids was, you know, uh, precarious enough in our characters that he didn't want to, you know, load us up with any more ammo to possibly, uh, you know, do bad things. But uh, what, what things we learn and the, the preciousness of those memories and then for Phil, your grandfather, these uh, people you've met today, Chris, and why I think it's just was so special for you to 
come back to the show today and want to talk about these things. And you're a hard ass, Chris, when you want to be in the in the best way. You never set out to be that, but when you need to be, you are. So to see the personal, uh, not toll this takes on you, but the impact it has on you and the feelings that it creates, it's, it's quite powerful. Yes, th thank you, Bob. Yes, it is. And uh, we owe them an extraordinary debt and freedom is not free. And the mantra of the Israelis have a uh, fighting system called Krav Maga that was developed after World War II when the Jewish people said never again. And so they created a street fighting system that, that, that was fairly easy to teach. And it's called Krav Maga. And the mantra of Krav Maga is so we may walk in peace. <laughs> and so we get to walk in peace because of strength. So, uh, um, geez, I don't know if I want to go to the next topic or not. <laughs> You're called, um, brother. You're the star of the show. So maybe let's talk about some strength. So it's been four months since I was here, um, July. And shortly after our last visit, um, my brother-in-law, Michael, died in a horrible freak accident. He's married to my wife's sister, a woman I love dearly, and he was one of my best friends. And he's the father of three kids, 17, 15, and 12. And um, he had this horrible freak accident that caused a brain injury. And he was in the hospital for about a month, and he died a little bit thereafter. And because of COVID, we couldn't see him. We could FaceTime with him. But as great as the technology is, it's not like being there. And um, when it became clear that he was not going to recover, that was a horrible thing to realize that. And then we had a tough choice, Bob. The hospital didn't want him. There's nothing else they could do for him. And because of COVID, any long-term care facility, any hospice-like facility, not available because they're running at 50 to 25% and there's a line anyway. So um, we made a decision to home hospice him here at our house. And I was his uh, primary caregiver for the last week of his life. As you may remember, when I was a kid, um, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, I worked as an orderly and I did it all. I was in the ER, I was in the ICUs, I was in the psych wards, you name it. And so being in that environment is not something that freaks me out. And we had gotten to a point where, um, and I'll just say it how it was for me, I wanted to take control of the situation. Having him locked in a hospital where we couldn't be with him was too painful for the whole family. And so we went through that experience together our whole family. And uh, I gave him his meds every hour on the hour. And it was a very long week. Um, so that's what's most recently happened. And um, what I'd like to share with you about Michael is you can't have a father who loves you more. You can't have a husband who loves you more. They had a marriage that Bruce Springsteen writes songs about. 
You can't have somebody who's a better provider for his family. He was an extraordinary provider. Matter of fact, the only criticism you could have of Michael is that he worked too hard. And you couldn't have a better friend and you sure as shit couldn't have a better guy to have a scotch with. And um, so there's a couple things. One is in, in, in working with the hospice team, they kept saying to us how extraordinary what, what was happening was for them because he was surrounded by his family and um, his, his best male friends, his brother, and in particular, the hospice nurses, the bulk of whom were female, said, we've never seen men come together to care in quite this way. And so one thing I just wanted to share with you is, I think we sort of got off track with end of life in our society, where putting somebody in a facility and you know, visiting them for an hour and letting them die alone, letting, letting the medical professionals care for them and be with them in their final moment. For some reason, we have shied away for, from that. Not all of us, but many of us. It's sort of the cultural norm and you could see it in the interactions we had with hospice, how unique it was to have a family rally and be with him nonstop. I was with him when he passed. And, and so what I would share with you about that, to get back to my grandfather, when he was dying, and he was my mother's father, my father said to me, and he'd been in and out of the hospital, he had respiratory problems and so forth. And so as a kid, you know, granddad being sick wasn't that unusual. He died in, in, in January, and my dad came to me in that December, and he said, look, you know, um, I don't know how much longer your grandfather is going to be here. So if there's anything you want to hear from him, you know, all those stories he likes to tell you, most of which you're sick of hearing, you might want to hear those stories again. And if there's anything you want to say to him, say it now. And so I tried to spend a lot of time with him while he was in the hospital and, and so forth. And my father, what he was doing for me, he gave me two incredible gifts. One was the gift of completion with my grandfather, who was an idol for me, an icon for me. And the other gift my dad gave me, Bob, was at a young age, he taught me the power of completing with somebody at the end of their life. And I've been able to do that many times since then. And so um, I think that it's very, very powerful and here's what I said to the hospice nurses when they asked why we were doing what we were doing. I said, you know what? It's bullshit. If you're going to sit there in Maui and drink Mai Tais with this guy and call him your brother and not be with him as he makes this transition. And so I just wanted to share that with you um, in that one of the most powerful parts of life is the part that we all have to face. And if we can face that with power, with grace, and with courage, um, it leads to a better life. And there was no way 
I was going to leave him in a hospital without his family being able to have that experience. Uh, Chris, again, you know, remarkable story. Uh, I was thinking, as you said that, and telling the story about your dad giving you that counsel to complete your, the relationship and the conversations and the transition there with your grandfather. Maybe that uh, Dylan Thomas poem, but, you know, do not go gentle into that good night. Maybe it's for the living as well as for the person who's dying. Don't let that person just pass away. And later you're saying, oh, why didn't I do this? Say this, I should have been. I sh That's for us as well. Yes. Yes, very much so. And of course, you know that um, his loss came less than a year after the horrible murder of my friend and brother from another mother, Tushar, four blocks from our house. So you can imagine a situation where in a year, less than a year, you experience a brutal murder. Four men attacked him at 3 a.m. in his house, kidnapped, robbed, and murdered him. Imagine that was one of your best friends. And then imagine COVID and all of the human suffering that has come, and of course the economic suffering that's come, and of course the civil unrest that we've had and the, and the, and the fight for equality for our brothers and sisters of color and everything else that's happened, all of this horrible um, bullshit around this election. And so for all of us, it's been a hell of a year. And then you put in the middle of that uh, the murder of somebody you love and the horrible freak accident that takes another person you love all at the same time. And um, that's a lot of fire to walk through in less than 12 months. And so a lot of people have been asking me, you know, how do you do that? How do you deal with that? And, and of course, a lot of us deal with pain and suffering in our lives, and we're all going to face pain and suffering in our lives. And there's just a couple things about that I would like to share with you. Um, one of them is the vast majority of the shit around sort of dealing with grief and pain and suffering and loss like this, I have found to be complete, utter bullshit. Oh, well, you know, there's seven, seven stages of grief and you, <laughs> the first year is always the hardest and all of that, right? Now, the time will, with time, it'll... No, 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 no. All that is absolute stupidity. And so what I have tried to do politely, because I, I know people mean well when they say these things, is to say, hey, 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 please, not that. And if you think about that, that's bullshit. Okay, this is not going to get better. When you spend as much time on the phone with crying elderly parents as I have, this is not getting better. I talked to a crying mother yesterday. It's not going to get better for her. And so for the first thing I would say is most of the stuff that we hear is garbage. So when you have this kind of an injury, when you experience this, you, my experience, and I'm no expert, you know how much time I spent in psychology or sociology or psychiatry, zero. My psychology, you know, I used to have this sticker that says, my bartender can beat up your therapist. So Jack Daniels is my therapist. Um, but um, 
the, there's a couple of ha's that have been true for me, may not be for others, but that have been true for me. The first one is, um, and I don't know who said it, but it's very powerful. There are certain things in life you can't get around. You have to go through. And at some level, nobody can help you with that. You have to go through it. And in my case, how you go through it has mattered a tremendous amount. And I have gotten through it with three things. Friends, family, and faith. And you have to go through it. And we will continue to go through this very, very long walk through fire. Um, many, many days where you can't get out of bed. So that's the first aha for me personally. The second one is, um, I think somehow a lot of us get the impression that you can process these feelings and they'll go away. And um, that has not been my experience and I don't think it ever will. This pain and suffering will never go away. And the way I relate to it now, Bob, is if you sort of say grief, anger, pain, loss, those, those emotions, they're like a new person in my life. That's really what it's like. It's like somebody's moved into the house and that person's always with me, more so than my wife or our hens or our cats or, <laughs> or anyone else. So this new person has moved into my life and is always with me. And sometimes that person's in the next room. And sometimes that person's sitting right next to me. And sometimes that person has their hands on my throat. And what I've learned, Bob, is for me, what there is to do is make room for that person. Early in my life, I heard this expression, what we resist persists. And so all the happy horseshit about the seventh depth of grief and all that stupidity, for me, what has been powerful is to realize, hey, this person's never going away. And so I have to be big enough to have this person in my life. And there's a, a handful of books in addition to friends, family, and faith that I have turned to over the last 12 months. Um, the first one, of course, is Viktor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, very few things in my life have been more powerful than that book. I read it as a young man, probably around 14 years old. Um, um, you know, I told you I was, I was fascinated with World War II. And so even at that age, I, I found that book somehow. Um, and I had gone, I've gone back and revisited Viktor Frankl. And I thank God for him. Another one, my, uh, I have a dear friend named Eddie Yoon. Um, we're working on a new book together. He's one of the greatest guys I know. He's written more on category for HBR than anyone else. And he's a devout Christian. And in my opinion, he is everything a religious or Christian person in the best sense 
represents. And he sent me a number of books, a couple of Bibles and a whole bunch of books. And one of those books was written by a legendary pastor in New York City named Timothy Keller. And the book is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And that is a legendary book. And then the other two are two I mentioned a little bit earlier. These are legendary writers uh, that have recently been on my podcast who've given me a gift that they didn't know they were going to give me. Uh, and that's Bruce Feiler with his book, Life is in the Transitions. I highly recommend this book to people, particularly now, because we are in a massive transition. And the insight that Bruce had was one I had never heard before, which is a meaningful percentage potentially half of our adult life is going to be lived in some kind of a transition. We choose to go to school. We, we move. We choose a new job or a new career. Uh, we choose to get married. We choose to have children. We choose to get divorced. Uh, some people choose to change religions. Some people choose to change their sex. So there are these proactive changes, transitions that we engage in. And most, for the most part, a lot of them are positive. When we take on a new career, we're excited about that. And of course, the opposite is true, where we have these things Bruce calls life quakes, where something horrible happens to us. Your phone rings at 5 a.m. and somebody tells you one of your best friends is missing. Or you sit there with the sheriff and the coroner and his family, and they tell you, I'll never forget, the coroner looked us in the eye, and he said, Tushar is here with us. And those are serious life quakes. And the insight that Bruce has, which is backed up by research, is that we spend a high percentage, somewhere around half of our adult lives, in these transitions, and yet very little has been written about managing and dealing with these transitions and accepting them as part of our life. Um, and I could tell you, my wife hardly ever listens to my podcast. She listened to the Bruce Feiler episode multiple times. She's bought, I don't know, 20 copies of the book and is giving them out to everybody. And so... I highly, highly recommend this incredible piece of work by Bruce Feiler. And then we just had on a young man who is one of the most profound writers in the English language today. Uh, I have his, happen to have his book right here. It's called Lives of the Stoics by Ryan Holiday, who's in his early 30s. And this is a young man who has dedicated a huge part of his life to studying the greats, to studying the great philosophers and understanding their lives and their teachings and helping to synthesize philosophy and history in a way that's highly consumable today. And this book, you know, it's 300 something pages. To me, and this is what I said to Ryan on the podcast, is an absolute act of audacity in an area and an era of hustle porn stars and Kardashian ass selfies. This man has dared to write. New York Times number one bestsellers about philosophy and history and their importance in our world today. And this book, Lives of the Stoics, um, is a very powerful read for today. Because if we want to understand how to process the present, a challenging present, a cocoon time, 
for all of us, looking back in history is a powerful way to do it. And this new book is an incredible gift that I would recommend for the holiday season. Um, we'll be giving Lives of the Stoics and Life in Transition, Life is in the Transitions to many of our friends and family this year. And so I just, I wanted to share that with you as well as things that I have relied on to, um, in addition to friends, family, and faith, to help bolster myself um, through what has been um, absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt, the worst year of my life. Phew. Chris, thanks. As a, uh, you know, the, the, the mysteries of, uh, you know, why these things happen, how they happen, how you get through them. I, I, I'm very happy for you that you were able to come to that point where you're able to tell everybody, look, don't, don't lay this soupy, syrupy things on me. I know you mean well, I'm just not interested. It will not be taken well, so please save it for somebody else. And I hope that uh, that new person in your life, I hope we'll gradually start to spend more time in the other room and then maybe out in the garage and then go somewhere else. Yes, I know they'll always be lurking. The question is at what distance? And of course, um, you never know when that person's gonna get you. Um, this morning being Veterans Day, um, I, I looked at a photo of my grandfather and I was sitting there at the kitchen table with my computer and looked at the photo on my computer. And I just started weeping. My wife came over and said, what, what's wrong? I just said, I miss Jack. So the last thing I really wanted to talk with you about, um, given you and I love the technology industry and have, have grown up in it, and it's, it's an industry that's given us so much, um, I wanted to talk about what I think might be the greatest, most important, untold story of the crisis that is 2020. And here's the aha. This aha I came to in multiple discussions with my friend Doug Merritt, who's the CEO of Splunk, who's one of the most extraordinary um, leaders in the technology industry in my 34-year career I've ever met, and an incredibly admiral man who's done a legendary job, in my opinion. And as we were talking um, in the late spring and through the summer, uh, this sort of the set of ahas that I want to share with you started to come to the fore. So let's just think about this for a second. Um, it has become clear that the cloud is an essential service. The internet is an essential service. Data is an essential service. Information technology has made dealing with this pandemic and everything that has come since, we are able to deal with it in a way that we'd be some kind of fucked without it. And I would assert to you that never has an industry scaled and responded like ours. Imagine, so let me give you this one data point, this one data point from the dumb guys at Stanford. <laughs> uh, according to Stanford researchers, 42% of the U.S. labor force now works from home. And in many cases, as we know, that happened in a week 
or days. That's millions and millions and millions of people. Now, what needed to happen for that to happen? I'll tell you what needed to happen. IT workers, technology leaders, became essential workers. And they rose to the challenge. They made the technology work. They embraced new approaches so that all of us could work from home. They paid close attention to supply chains so that our, our hospitals could continue to function. They completely transformed their business models so that some of our small businesses had a fighting chance to stay alive. They, Amazon.com is an essential service. Walmart is an essential service. Costco is an essential service. We would be fucked without these people. It is a miracle that the internet didn't blow up. We are experiencing now, Bob, and you know this better than I do, what some security experts say is the largest attack, uh, cyber attacks in the history of the United States on our government agencies, on our elections, on our hospital infrastructure, on our supply chain infrastructure. The level of cyber attack has never been higher than right now. And have we had some problems? Yes, we have, but you know what, Bob? It's a miracle that our banks haven't gone down. It's a miracle that as you and I sit here and talk, the legendary pharmaceutical companies of the world have collaborated on, 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 on approaches to both um, minimize the impact of this disease if you get it and develop a vaccine so that hopefully we will not get it and many other things. It is a miracle what Zoom has done. Is it a miracle? what Slack has done. It is a miracle what Cisco has done to keep the internet operating. It is a miracle what all these incredible Instacart, all these incredible home delivery services have done, changed their business models in a second. What allowed all this to happen? What allowed this to happen is massive investments in the internet and the cloud, massive investments in forward-leaning data technologies, massive investments in telecom. It's incredible that our wireless infrastructure didn't just go poof. We're in the middle of rolling out 5G and, and, and AT&T and T-Mobile and all these incredible companies did not go down with massive increases in traffic and data, extraordinary. And so what's my point? I think one of the greatest untold stories of this year is that information technology is an essential service. The IT industry, the enterprise technology industry, IT professionals inside companies and inside vendors became essential workers. And they rose up to a challenge, massive increases in data, massive increases in, 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 in load. And they rose up to that challenge. How is it possible Zoom did not blow up? It's incredible. How is it possible AWS did not explode? How is it possible even some of the longer term vendors, the Oracles, the SAPs, the Workdays, all of these types of folks, how is it possible these systems didn't evaporate? How is it possible the security leaders in, in the technology world have fended off all of this digital evil? It's possible because our industry has invested tremendously and IT workers and professionals around the world have risen to this challenge. And I think they are heroes.
And that is a that is a great point. I want to come back to that in just a second. But first, we want to present a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. They're the greatest unsung heroes of 2020. And Bob, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to all of the developers, all of the programmers, all of the IT ops professionals, all of the network engineers, all of the, 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 the data architects, and on and on and on. Every single person in our industry, whether they're at a vendor or whether they're inside an IT organization, whether they're the one IT person in a small business that's, that's trying so hard to survive, our technology leaders have saved our ass, have literally saved humanity in this time of crisis. And I know that sounds like hyperbole to some, but I would disagree with anybody who disagrees with that. Grow a brain, pay attention, look at what we've been able to accomplish. Look at how we've been able to deal with this crisis. Look at how we've kept our economy going. Look at what's going on in the medical profession. Look at what's going on in research. And so I have never been more grateful and thankful to the vendors and the IT professionals, the CIOs and CTOs and everybody in our industry. And I think we all owe them a tremendous thank you and a, a tremendous gratitude. Yeah, Chris, we tend to take these things for granted, right? Uh, naively, foolishly, you know, whatever it might be. But I, I was reflecting on that some this morning, I writing a piece for tomorrow's newsletter in which I uh, was looking more toward the top of these companies, not all those folks in the middle uh, who really make this happen the day after day after day stuff, the contributions that you cited so well. But I was trying to think next month, I need to pick uh, the CEO of the year. And I just went through the 10 companies in the CloudRose top 10. Look at what these companies have done, whether they're cloud native or like you said, some of these ones that are uh, you know, bizarrely called sort of legacy companies because they're 40 or 50 years old, right? It's like, you know, tennis, women tennis players get to be 22 and it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, they're, they're over the hill, they're 22. But those companies somehow have managed not just to, as you said, Chris, keep all those things up, keep those things from collapsing, but they have fueled the capabilities of the non-technology companies. In a lot of cases, they've helped reel those companies like you said at Costco, Walmart, you know, some of these others, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical companies, what Zoom has done. And they've, they've reeled them into the technology industry. And those companies are going to become within a few years, those today non-tech companies are going to become in some ways indistinguishable from technology companies and uh, software might be eating the world, but I think the tech industry is eating the world in that uh, all of those companies are going to come to find that uh, this fusion of what they've always done and what they knew with the most advanced modern technology, all the things you cited there is going to turn them into uh, new sets of capabilities, new sets of potential and possibilities and opportunities, unlike anything anybody's ever seen. So yeah, well, let's get this uh, pretty shitty 2020 year behind us, throw some dirt on it and uh, jump into 2021 with a lot to, yes. a lot to be very excited about. 
And one other big thing about the tech companies, there's been a lot of backlash lately on quote unquote big tech. And look, some of it I think is, 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 is deserved. Um, oh yeah. I think the, uh, deplatforming. I think some of the behavior of some of the social media companies where they don't appear to be applying uh, certain approaches uh, equally, um, where certain public figures, uh, authors, politicians, uh, leaders of one sort or another get deplatformed off Facebook or Twitter without any warning. Um, that's bullshit. Uh, we got, we got, our podcast got thrown off Apple Podcasts uh, two, almost two years ago now for eight weeks, and we didn't know why, and they wouldn't tell us, and we don't know why we got thrown off, and we don't know why they let it. Well, actually, I do know why they let us back. They let us back because finally I tweeted out, look, I don't know if we're ever going to be back on Apple, but here are all the other platforms we're on. And all of a sudden, our listeners start, started tweeting and responding and saying things, and miraculously, we were back on the next day. So look, some of these things, some of these things are deserved and privacy is a big issue. And you, you can argue some of these companies are, are too powerful. And, you know, I recently did a podcast with my friend Naveen Chada, who's the leader of Mayfield Capital and the legendary John Chambers. And John made a very interesting point. Um, the podcast is called Conscious VC. It's, it's been a real fun thing that I've been doing with, with Naveen. But anyway, uh, he made a point, John Chambers made a point on the podcast, which is if the tech industry doesn't get smart, about regulating itself, the government's gonna come. And he's right about that. So some of these things are just. However, big tech, where would we be without Apple right now? Where would people who've been locked in an apartment building for six months, older folks, folks in my family who don't go out very often because they're afraid to get this disease, where would they be without Facebook? It's how they communicate with their friends and family. So are there negative things? Yes. Are there things that some of these companies have done wrong that they need to get right? Yes. Should we talk about those things? Absolutely. And give your fucking head a shake. Where would we be without AWS? Where would we be? Look at the job. You've written about it. You called the ball on Microsoft before just about anyone else. Look at the incredible job Microsoft has done uh, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. They stopped one of the greatest security attacks ever in American history. And that's just something we know about. Who knows what they've been doing that we don't know about. And so whether it's Apple or Amazon or Google or Facebook um, that, that have been maligned of late, give your head a shake for a second. You know, it's, it's easy to shit on a guy like Jeff Bezos and I'm not saying he's a perfect person, but where would we be without Amazon? And so these companies, um, we owe them a debt of gratitude. And more importantly, or most importantly, we owe the people who build these systems and manage these systems and maintain these systems and scale these systems and secure these systems, a huge debt of gratitude. Because never in the history of human beings has one industry been called upon to scale and deliver like our industry has been called upon. And for the most part, we've gotten it done. And that's incredible. Chris, incredible is a good word for uh, what you've shared today. Not just uh, 
you know, in its logic and the, you know, the, the, the mental horsepower you bring to bear to it, but the emotional side of it. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be your friend. I'm, I'm so happy that you're able to uh, come back and share some things, not just with me. I'm lucky I get to talk to you fairly often, but uh, you know, with other folks and uh, your ability, you know, as you need a little picker up or somewhere, your ability to swing from, you know, this glorious rant here at the end about give thanks to the IT industry and those unsung heroes, to these books you've read, to your discussions with Colin Powell and Stan McChrystal, to your, uh, I, I got to say, this sort of infatuation with the Stoics and a, a young author who can, in today's times, or what, what is the attention span people have now, like six seconds, or am I overestimating that? But he can go back a few thousand years and, uh, you know, make this stuff, as you said, consumable, enjoyable, fun. The audaciousness of Ryan Holiday. The subtitle of the new book is The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. This guy's talking about Seneca and Marcus Aurelius today. Yeah. In the yeah. era of somebody's got to build, you know what? If somebody could build for me a plug-in for my browser so that I never, ever, ever have to see or hear anything about a Kardashian ever again, that I would pay... <laughs> I'd pay a hundred bucks a month for that, right? That's the stupidity we live in. We live in a stupidity where in the tech, in, in, in the entrepreneur uh, and marketing world, we have all these idiot, I call them hustle porn stars, yeah. you know, all these morons and stuff telling you they, what you want to be is an influencer, like, like likes and fucking shares mean something, you dumb fucks, right? Anyway, in the, in the face of all of that, Ryan Holiday, who's, I don't know, 33, 35, comes out and goes, no, 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 I'm going to write many books about these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chris. I said to him, you know, if you had been my philosophy teacher, or my history teacher, I never would have left philosophy or history class. <laughs> hey, look at this, though, Chris, from the span of a uh, guy in his early 30s <clears throat> to Phil Cosentino, 90 years old, you know, running his orchard there in in San Jose and uh, reflecting back on, you know, a, a incredible life well lived service to his country. On this day, uh, you know, the, the heroes you mentioned in the IT industry, the nurses, the doctors, first responders. Uh, but today of all days, there's the, the unsung heroes, what is one less than one tenth of 1% of Americans who joined this volunteer force and have done that, these warriors who protect the rest of us and who, like your grandfather said, I will do this so that you don't have to and you can have a better life. We, uh, we all have a lot to be grateful for, Chris, and even that guy who's come into your life and sometimes sits next to you, gets his hands on your neck from time to time, sometimes gets in the other room, right? I think... There's a gratitude to be had for the wisdom and courage you've had to share that and say, I could try to fight this guy every day, but he's going to beat me. So I got to let him into my life. So there's, You got to make friends with him. I'm not happy he's here. I don't like him at all. And I particularly don't like what caused him to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, other than any cooking recipes that you have because other than that brother i think you have uh you have imparted some uh, incredible stories thought-provoking ideas and it's uh just more proof of why you are the uh potentate of podcasts 
Well, Bob, it's great to be back with you. Thank you so much for letting me come back. <laughs> of course, of course. It, it was a big stretch, but uh, we're happy to do it. So for all of our dear friends out there in the Cloud Wars audience area, um, thanks for being with us on this very special episode. Uh, it's very different. Chris, thank you for being here, opening up your heart, your big brain, and your big soul, I think, to the world. And not easy to do, but... Uh, you're a generous guy. You're a brilliant guy. You're a great friend. Thanks for being here. And we look forward to seeing you next month because we'll Thanks, be one Bob. month at that point closer to the end of 2020. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I love you. All right, folks out there. Love you too. Happy Veterans Day. Even a few days late. We've got a lot to be grateful for. Thanks for being with us.